The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Great to have you along after a nice weekend. Hope you had as much of a uh, terrific weather weekend as we had here in upstate New York. Wow, two or three, maybe four perfect days in a row. I mean, they were absolutely perfect. Today it was the best of of the group, and I think tomorrow is supposed to be equally nice. And, um, you know, we know what's right around the corner. We're in November, for, for heaven's sake. We know that uh, it won't be long. And, in fact, we've already had some snow. So we know that's well on the way. So it's nice to get this little bit of a break in, um, in fall weather because it was really more summer-like the last couple days here. So I hope you were able to enjoy the weekend regardless of the weather anyway. I know that the news uh, is a stress on us all, but it is what it is, and we have to plow forward and continue what we're doing. Um, we have an interesting conversation tonight ahead of us, but before we get into all of that, I'm, I hope you've heard the news about the uh, the Pfizer announcement with the COVID-19 vaccination. And you know we've talked about vaccinations on the program. I'm not going to uh, editorialize on it at all, but I will say that Pfizer has announced that this vaccine has shown to be 90% effective in preventing infections of COVID-19, which is astonishing. They were hoping to reach 60%, and they're at 90%. So the Operation Warp Speed has paid off, and it looks like we will have an effective vaccination available uh, sometime by year's end um, or maybe early 2021. So we have to uh, we have to think that warp speed program and, of course, uh, President Trump and his efforts there. Uh, we will see that vaccine, and that if it's if it's what they've promised us, uh, it should help or completely solve this problem. That has basically put our country into a standstill and a lockdown. Uh, let's hope. Let's keep our fingers crossed that it is the miracle that we've been asking for. Uh, but tonight we're going to be talking about education. And the reason this topic has become a focal point for a lot of discussions is that just like everything else that we have done, the normal, our normal is about to change in everything. It's changed in the way we do business. It's changed in the way we interact with our friends. It has changed in the way we conduct ourselves online. And it has changed in education. And these are all results of the pandemic, of course. And while uh, certainly we don't look at the pandemic as a blessing by any means, but anytime you've got something like this, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, you can look for the silver linings. And I think we may have some here. We're learning how to do things more efficiently and better in some cases. Now, it's not a great thing for what we're seeing happening to our business community. Of course, they're going to have to adapt and evolve. But there are things that are we're learning how to do better. Uh, remote uh, telemedicine is one of those things. That is going to greatly uh, help people uh, with their medical problems and needs and do it at a lower cost. That's a great thing. And education is evolving as well. And maybe it's about time. Our guest tonight, Brian Kaplan, has written about this. He's got a book that's called The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. And before before you draw any conclusions, this is a this is a fantastic discussion. I've heard Brian on other shows talk about his book and his work. 
and it's commonsensical, it's uh, resourceful, and I think it's time we take a look under the hood of the education system and say, okay, how can we make it better and more efficient? I know that in New York State, our school property taxes, because property taxes are how schools are generally funded in New York State, have been skyrocketing for years to the point where they're unmanageable for a lot of people. People can't afford to be in their homes because these taxes are so high. And these are people without kids, generally retired folks. So we need to find a better way to get this stuff done, and we need to determine exactly what we're trying to accomplish. And Brian has looked at all of that, and that's what we'll be talking about tonight, and I'm looking forward to it. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel and the Twitch channel. Both of those channels can be found by searching for J.V. Johnson on their respective platforms. Also find our podcast. That is available on all major podcast distribution platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and others. So just keep looking for it. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll start our conversation. Again, tonight we're talking with Brian Kaplan, and we're talking about education, the educational system here in the United States. It's beyond reality. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark. Because you deserve to save too. Become a Shark and save. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We've got a great one for you. This is going to be a really um, uh, interesting introspective into what we do with our kids. We have a system of education that we have um, funded, we have massaged, we've evolved, and what exactly are we getting for what we pay for? Is it good? Is it worth it? Does it need change? Uh, What is COVID doing to this system of education? There are parents that are very, very frustrated with what's happening. There are some that love the way things are changing. And our guest tonight has looked at this. He's written about it. His name is Brian Kaplan. He's a professor of economics at George Mason University. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He's written books, including The Myth of the Rational Voter, which was named the best political book of the year by the New York Times. He also wrote Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, and the book we're going to spend most of the time talking about tonight, The Case Against Education. Brian, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's a real honor to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. First thing we've got to get out of the way, because this this topic and the education system itself is a bit sacrosanct, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, you better not (laughs) criticize it or else people think that you're a bad person. And that is the problem. I mean, we're going to talk a lot about this. You've made some excellent observations about the system as a whole. But it, but as someone who has been somewhat politically involved myself, as, as all of us have just gone through one of the most political, uh, uh, I don't know what we would call it, uh, chaotic seasons we've ever seen, um, all of this together makes us all politically aware. But one of the things that I know is that if you criticize education, you have a tough time of winning anything. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, so I mean, you know, everyone treats me fine, actually, but Good. it seems like almost anyone else who criticizes it gets into big trouble. Uh, but, you know, I mean, honestly, like you just have to go and call things like you see them and just try to be polite about it, which is what I try to do. Well, I have to commend you because it takes someone who has some confidence and some bravery to step out onto that third rail. But but it's something that needs to be done because when you don't take this kind of constructive look at the things we're not only doing with our children or teaching our children or how we're doing it and what it's costing us, um, then you just end up with a big mess. Are we there? Are we in a big mess? We are in an an enormous mess. I mean, just the way that parents across the country have been turned into unpaid employees of the public school system, where they just sit over their kids' shoulders, breathing down their necks to get them to upload stuff. I mean, again, it's it's a a really crazy system. What I often say is, you know, at least the schools used to provide daycare. You know, a product, a service of undeniable value. And now you don't even get daycare. I just went through the process of having to do some uh, financial reconciliations. Uh, I don't have a particularly um, large home. I've got an, a, a, an average size home in a very small village in upstate New York with a school district that has about 93 kids per grade level. Uh, and I just, you know, took a look again at what I spend or what I have to pay in school taxes uh, at the threat of losing my home. And it is not a small nut to crack. It's a lot of money. Yeah, it's astronomical. So, I mean, like, like uh, per student, U.S. spending would now be over about $15,000 per year. So, again, if you ever do, do the math and you say, wait a second, so if we just went and had 20 kids and we just gave one teacher the money to teach them, that teacher would be getting... Say, what is that? Oh, yeah. It would be $300,000 a year. I'm like, all right, so what was the cost of the room? All right, some books. And it's like, where's the rest of the money going? So, yeah, it's a very good question. Um, You are a a professor of economics. How does a professor of economics take such an interest in education? Uh, Well, actually, the study of education is one of the main things that economists do. So there's a whole field called labor economics where we think about why people earn the money that they earn, why some jobs pay more than others. And, of course, one of the big answers to that is jobs where you need more education generally make generally have higher pay. And then from there, a lot of economists have spent their lives studying what kinds of education pay and how much exactly and just comparing costs and benefits. So it actually really is a bread-and-butter topic in economics. You, uh, you're probably familiar, I'm not sure where, where exactly you are, but in the Northeast, particularly in mm-hmm. rural areas, we've got a lot of these little buildings that uh, most of them have, convert, have been converted into homes, but these little one-room schoolhouses that were built in all these little communities, mostly agricultural communities around uh, the Northeast. Uh, they're quaint little buildings, but the the description that you gave just a moment ago when you said you take 20 students, 15,000, you know, <laughs> that kind of sounds like the one-room school uh, model. Uh, is I mean, how did we move from that uh, to the point where now we've got these massive campuses uh, and we're spending massive amounts of money for them? Right. I mean, of course. You know, the reason why there's more kids in the school has a lot to do with urbanization and just people living closer together. But yeah, the fact that you're spending spending so much money per kid, I think it really does come down to a whole philosophy of you know, we can never worry about the cost when it's when it's something that's this important. And again, this is the kind of attitude that is easy to have when you're spending other people's money. If you're spending your own money, 
no matter how important it is, it's still an important question what the cost is when you're paying for private schools. And yeah, well, like how much exactly is it going to cost for us to go to Princeton? Is it really worth it? Like why? Right? These are reasonable questions, but when it's tax dollars at work, then there is a very great stigma against someone who starts raising these questions, which, you know, I mean, I always say, this is, you know, like, these are the questions that any, any responsible agent of another person asks, right? If you're given a pile of money to spend on someone else's behalf and you're not asking, is there a cheaper way of doing this? Why does it cost so much? You're a bad agent. Let's um, let's let's back this up just a little bit further too. Um, we talk about education, and we assume we all know what we're talking about. Um, my impression had always been, until I had kids, uh, that the schools were there to teach my kids how to write, how to uh, you know the, the basic three R's: reading, writing, mm-hmm. arithmetic, maybe some history in there, some science in there. You know, some of the basics, so they had they understood the world around them. I found out that it was far different than that. What is the mission statement of education in the United States right now? Do we have one? Well, I mean, I know what the mission statement was at the uh, school district where my kids were going, where you know, this is uh, Fairfax County. We show up there and we hear their whole philosophy. And, I mean, you know, like, do we really pay you to have a philosophy? Like, like you know, why is it that you aren't just going and doing the basic stuff you're talking about? I think a lot of what's going on is that teaching kids basic stuff is actually quite boring, especially since so many of them take so long to actually learn it, and it's a struggle. And, of course, there's also the problem that for something like math, you actually have an objective test about whether the student can do the work or not. And it's very discouraging when you find out that you, work, that you struggle to teach people something for a year and they don't really know it. So isn't it easier just to switch over to group projects where everyone's a winner? So I think that's at least a big part of the philosophy of education in much of the country. But, you know, it varies a lot. So, I mean, like, this is just, this is the immediate we're in. Uh, when I was doing back-to-school nights for my kids, uh, that was when I had a whole, a whole reassessment of my own education. I said, you know, my own education didn't seem that great at the time, but at least teachers seem to be teaching the subjects. And now yeah. there's just so, you know, so little emphasis upon actually mastering bodies of knowledge, which... It seems strange when you put it that way, although if you realize, well, look, what would you rather do as a teacher? Would you rather go and say, here, there, there's a body of knowledge you have to master, and if you don't, then I have failed at my job? Or do you want to give them some activities where whatever they do is good enough and counts and moves you along? I, um, you know, I remember being in school and not feeling as though the teachers were shying away from the actual subject matter. I remember my tests being difficult. I remember having to actually read and study and actually work at it. And yeah, it was damn boring and I didn't want to be there, but I stuck it out. I learned some things and I graduated and did pretty well, went on to college. Am I remembering it wrong, Brian, or has it changed? So it's in terms of, of data, it's hard to get really good data on whether it's changed. It sure seems to me like it has changed. Uh, but, I mean, the main thing that we can say with confidence is that you know, the share of the adult population that really is very shaky on literacy and numeracy is quite low, has been for the last couple decades as long as we've been testing. Uh, so, you know, it's you tempting know, just to say, you know, the schools ain't, you know, ain't what they used to be and never was, where uh, you know, obviously the schools were not doing that great of a job at any point as far as we can tell. And yet, yeah, it does seem like there has been a shift toward group projects and just the students' feelings and away from actually mastering bodies of knowledge. Um, so, you know, like, you know, that's more 
impressionistic. I, you know, there's something that sure seems that way to me. I don't know, but I haven't come across any research really showing that that's true one way or the other. Well, I also know that uh, my, my kids are about, my youngest is, I think now, let me see, five years out of school uh, or out of high school. Um, maybe a little, I don't even, I can't even remember, but all I know is when my kids were going to school, it seemed like I had more homework as the parent <laughs> than they did. I felt like I was doing projects. I had to build a catapult one time. I had to do all these things. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm a little too busy to be, uh, you know, doing the homework that the school is assigning my kids, but they can't do it themselves. It requires a parent to help them. I, I that seems a little unreasonable to me. Yeah, yeah, it is a quite crazy system. Of course, uh, usually it's moms that wind up getting stuck doing this stuff. Uh, but, but yeah, and it's like what exactly the point of it is. Uh, you know, like even trying, you know, teach, teaching people to work in teams or, or teaching people to uh, pass the buck over to another person that knows how to do the job while you sit there. Uh, yeah, so, you know, there's a lot of silly stuff like that going on. Just another thing that I want to be uh, certain that we're we're on the same page here about when we're ta- having this conversation about education, are we talking about public, public and private, uh, secondary, and then um, um, college level education? Where, where, where's the uh, the beginning and end point of uh, the grade levels we're talking about when when you took a look at education for your book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know, my, my book, The Case Against Education, it really is meant to cover all of those. Uh, in practice, I would say that I basically went up studying grades 9 on, because since I'm focused on the economic effects, you can't really measure the effect of education if everybody gets it. You've got to look at differences. Yeah. So since virtually every single kid in the U.S. at least goes up to 8th grade now, it's really hard to know, well, how much money would you make if you only finished 7th grade? There's just hardly anyone left alive with a 7th grade education only in the U.S. But I am not just talking about higher education. A lot of people actually misread the title of the book as the case against higher education. I say, oh, yeah, I've got a big section on high school in there. And yes, in terms of public and private school, of course, for K-12, it's 90% public, so that's most of what I'm talking about. And I know I do have a lot of friends who want to say, well, private education is totally different. And I say, uh, well, is it? I mean, yeah, there, are, there are some differences, but most of the time it seems like private education is basically giving you like, a snazzier version of the same thing going on over in the neighboring public school, um, you know, like with a few differences like kids that aren't paying the tuition or cause too much trouble don't get to go to the school, whereas public schools would have to figure out some, some way of accommodating such people. Uh, but, but, yeah, I mean, like, what I would say is that I really don't see that private school winds up being too much different from the public school most of the time anyway. We talked about the mission statement of our education system, and I know it varies from district to district. However, uh, at the end of the day, when someone graduates, whether it's from a high school or a college, they hold a piece of paper. How important is that piece of paper for the, re- for the, from, for the rest of their life from that point on? Yeah, so that's a great question. So it is very tempting to say, well, if you didn't really learn very much useful, then this mere piece of paper isn't going to matter very much. But one of the main things that economists have found when studying the labor market effects of education is that those pieces of paper are very important, and there are very large pay gaps, not just based upon differences in education, but especially based on whether you finished. So if you go and take a look at the statistics on how much the college graduates make compared to people who only went to high school, then usually you'll see something like college graduates are making 75% more. But then when you break it down and say, well, what about people who got 
three years of college and then gave up. What you see is the people who did three years of college and then gave up, gave up only make a little bit more money than people that didn't even start college. So there are these very large payoffs for crossing finish lines in, uh, in academics. Uh, there's a huge one for uh, the bachelor's degree. There's a quite sizable one even for high school, big difference in earnings between high school dropouts and high school grads. And then for graduate degrees, often it looks like the only payoff for it is from finishing. So you could work on your PhD for nine years, and if you just wind up floundering at the end and give up, then it really doesn't seem to do much for you in the labor market at all, uh, which, again, is very puzzling if you think about school as teaching job skills, because it's like, well, if I've got 90% of the job skills, why don't I get 90% of the bonus? Right. On the other hand, uh, what I say in my book is so much of education is not really about job skills. It's about jumping through hoops to show people you can do it. Right. And, and especially a lot of it is about showing that you're willing to conform to social expectations about what you're supposed to do with your life. And in that case, there's such a strong social expectation to graduate that the, the people that don't, really do, uh, do endure a very large stigma in the labor market, I mean, generally to the point where if there's a job where they expect a college degree these days, then anyone who applies who doesn't have that credential is just getting their application thrown in the trash. Right. So when you think about it that way, you can really understand why those pieces of paper would be so important. Important in, in meeting certain minimum criteria, but as you pointed out, maybe not reflective of how much knowledge that person has mm-hmm. versus how much the one who only finished three years. Right. Although, you know, like I said, probably a lot of what's going on is that employers just nervous yeah. to go and hire someone that didn't wind up finishing in a society where we put so much emphasis on finishing. It's like, well, why didn't he finish? I mean, I always like talk about an example, a kid who's one Aristotle class short of graduation. And it's like, well, you really think you're going <laughs> to use Aristotle on this job at the bank? It's like, well, no, but, like, why don't we just play it safe and hire someone that did what they were supposed to do, namely finish the degree? The uh, When my kids were in college, I have an, a, a very good friend of mine who is an accountant, and he said to me one day, and both of his kids, well, he's got one in college, one who's graduating high school this year, headed to college. Um, but he said something to me that really changed the way I looked at college. And he said, you know, th- this particular education, I was complaining that it cost me basically $250,000 to send my oldest to college over the course of all those years. And mm-hmm. um, and he said to me, you know, think of it if you had taken that 250 and bought a chain of four car washes for her and let her run those. <laughs> You know, which, what is going to pay off more in the end for her? And that, I thought that was a great point. It really made me look at it in a different way. Now, he wasn't advocating that I don't send my kids to college. He was just trying to point out something that I hadn't considered. And it really kind of changed the way I looked at it. Yeah, I mean, especially for elite private colleges, I mean, the, the number of people where they actually are getting a large benefit out of it that would be the makeup for the cost is probably very low. Uh, so... You know, you know, especially if your kid can get into the top public school in your state, then the case for paying two or three times as much to go to a private school is probably very weak. There is quite a bit of research on this. And again, you know, the main thing to realize is that while people at top schools do have very successful careers usually, normally the, you know, to get into those schools, you've got to be quite stellar. So you just imagine if the typical kid at Harvard had instead gone to University of Virginia or something like that, uh, most of the research says that they would have been at least almost as successful. Uh, now, that's mostly measured in terms of just how much money they're making. So there right, are some right. jobs where they might not pay that well, but 
your, your kid really wants to do them and they need to have this special degree in order to get the job. You know, like a job like being a professor, right? So if you want to be a professor, it really helps to go to a top school. And even though professors are not close to the highest paid people in society, still, uh, it is a very sweet gig to get. So if it's really important to your kid to have that job, then maybe it's a good investment. But then again, you have to consider, yeah, well, like, isn't that a long shot? What are the odds this will all work out? And, you know, how much extra value am I getting? So these are all very reasonable questions to ask. Again, you know, like there, there are so many parents who do seem to be suckered in by the fact that kids at top schools do well, forgetting that those kids arrived on campus with so many advantages that you should expect them to do well even if they went someplace else. And that's what the research usually says, is that the kind of kid that can get into Harvard would have done well at other schools as well. Uh, I just lived through this, too. My nephew, um, who graduated valedictorian in his high school, had a 997 average uh you know no 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 blemishes on his record nothing and uh, you know he wanted to get into an ivy league school and he couldn't and i was just astounded mm-hmm. by that they don't get much more dedicated to what he was trying to do and they certainly you know can't get much higher in sat scores and and gpa uh but yet he he couldn't get in and i thought that was that was kind of quite remarkable yeah i mean what's something what's special about the ivy league schools is that the number of students they enroll has not changed very much, even mm-hmm. though the population of the country has increased tremendously. So almost any other business, if the number of customers triples, you open three, you open two more stores. Right. But uh, the Ivy Leagues don't work that way. Uh, rather, what they do is they raise their standards. And on top of that, uh, something else that researchers have noted is that Ivy League schools have actually expanded their markets to, uh, to a national one over time, uh, which basically means that the very top schools are a lot harder to get into than they were in the past, even though actually the typical college is easier than ever to get into. So when you want to go down the pecking order a bit, then you pretty quickly get into schools that accept virtually anyone who will pay the tuition. Uh, but you know, but you know, like these very top schools get a lot of extra attention in society because elites, the kind of people that write about education, very often went to the very top schools, and they think of them as being the place where America goes to get a degree, and you know, that is so far from true, it's, it's, all, it's crazy. It's just a very tiny share of the population would be going to these schools. How much of what we're talking about when it comes to whether it's Ivy League schools or the schools, as you said, will, will accept anyone who's willing to pay the tuition, how much of th- this is business versus education? Yeah, well, these, almost all these are nonprofits. So that doesn't mean that they're not interested in money, but... I honestly think that there's a lot of weird things that are going on in universities that have very little to do with trying to make money. Uh, you just have to think about there being different people in different positions in universities, each with their own agendas, many of which are kind of odd to outsiders. I mean, you know, like the you know, first thing about Ivy League schools is they could easily triple tuition and still fill their dorms yeah. during normal times. I mean, they have so many applicants, so many families are desperate to go there. So if they were to just raise their tuition a lot, they wouldn't have any trouble getting getting paying customers for it. So if you look at that, it sure doesn't seem like they're maximizing profits, especially when you realize, you know, which is not surprising when you realize how much money they're sitting on with their endowments. Right? And then, you know, like another very common thing that schools are doing is the people in the admissions office have a philosophy of how they want to change society and make it more fair in their eyes. And on the one hand, they can't just go and 
uh, admit you know, like a body where and where no one pays any tuition. Most schools don't have those endowments. That's only the very richest and, and top ones. Uh, but on the other hand, a lot of a lot of schools there are people who are making decisions where they're striking a balance between having enough tuition to pay the bills combined with doing the social engineering that they feel is really valuable. Let's introduce government into this conversation, and we're going to have to do it in two sections here, uh, higher education and then um, and then high school, secondary education. Mm-hmm. When it comes to higher education, uh, what is the effect of government, not in affecting what's being taught or affecting policies, but, it, but affecting the financial equation here? Right. So I mean, most people in America go to public schools. Uh, they're a lot cheaper, of course, and a big part of the reason they're so much cheaper is because taxpayers are footing the bill. Uh, so that's the first thing to realize about what's going on is that um, you know, taxpayers are actually the, the, the main ones that are funding them. Uh, people, of course, are a lot more upset about uh, student loans rather than the part the taxpayers are paying. Uh, and if, if, and you know, the thing, thing that's very striking about this is that with the student loans, at least there is some reason to ask, is it really worth it? Do I really want to go into $50,000 worth of debt for this degree? Right. On the other hand, if it's free college for all, then who on earth has any reason to ask these questions? Mm-hmm. Right. So if you know you can just go there for no money at all, then it's really, do I have anything better to do with my time than receive a free education uh, here? And for that, uh, you know, very few people are going to say, I guess I do. Uh, so, you know, my view actually is that you know, student loans are the less dysfunctional part of the system, and it's really the taxpayer subsidies that are the really dysfunctional part. Again, at least the uh, student loans do leave people with a reason to wonder and to ask the important questions like, is this really what I should be doing with my life? Do I really want to pay this much money for it? Um, so, I mean, I'm, I, I would say that I'm much, much more critical of the free college for all movement than I am of student loans. I think they both have problems, but. It's the effort to make college as cheap as possible and to get people to not uh, to stop asking questions about money, which, again, I think are generally very good questions, right? So, I mean, I, I mean, you know, like when you know, people often get very upset when you start saying, well, we should worry about the cost of things. Mm-hmm. They look, that's exactly what we should be doing, right? right? So, I mean, I, I think about being a teenager and asking my dad for $20. And he's like, what do you need $20 for? What happened <laughs> right. to the last $20 I gave you? Right. Well, what exactly, what exactly is this going to accomplish? Did it work out well last time? Right? And, you know, these are reasonable questions. Sure. When, when it, and when it's your own money, you ask them. Uh, and then, you know, strangely, people seem to prefer to elect politicians that don't ask these questions about taxpayer money. You know, like, of course, like, you know, who should be in charge of taxpayer money except somebody acting like my dad, eyeing suspiciously at people requesting money for ill-defined purposes? Well, you know, if you don't uh, ask questions like that, you're really not being a responsible agent of taxpayers. Yeah, I think that's important, too. But I also see, you know, we've seen a tremendous increase in the cost of uh, higher education, uh, at every at every point, you know, whether it's tuition or housing or whatever it happens to be, these these numbers have uh, increased uh, pretty significantly. So people turn to the government for subsidies of some kind or another. Those subsidies come in, and the more they come in, it seems like it just fuels the inflation in those costs. It's a chicken and egg thing going on here. Am I viewing it correctly? Uh, partly. I mean, one thing is that the rise in the cost of college is greatly exaggerated by the fact that most people don't pay list price. Okay. So if you look at list price of college, then it does seem like it's risen tremendously. 
most people aren't paying less price, and especially at expensive schools, uh, it is very standard for there to be heavy discounts. So you know you should really keep that in mind. Uh, but yeah, of course, that when when you think about it, well, why is it really so expensive? Uh, yeah, if government goes and subsidizes it, then you know, or especially you know, that then schools can, you know, especially if government says we'll go and loan students whatever money it takes to go there, then it is easy for schools to go and raise the prices. Um, so you know, you know, so what your your story is not wrong, but it is, but you know, like it is only part of the story because there's also just the fact that. The school is not nearly as expensive as it looks because so many people don't pay full price. And again, especially a lot of this gets distorted by the fact that elites are really focused on like what is Harvard charging this year, yeah. which is irrelevant for almost everybody on earth. I mean, really, what for most people, what matters is what is Cal State Northridge charging, right? Or uh, you know, or what what is the University of Michigan charging for in-state? So again, that would be, would be a much more typical choice. Uh, so, you know, so that is more expensive than it was uh, you know, adjusting for inflation, but it's not the crazy increase that you would, that you would see at very top schools. Although even there, you know, like one of the big secrets about top schools is that if your family is even nearly middle class. You often can get into Ivy League schools paying nothing. Uh, and I know what you say is true because, um, again, having two kids that were in college at the same time, my daughter was going to a state school. My son got into a private school, uh, a well-respected school, Lemoyne College in uh, Syracuse, New York. And the discounts they gave us for him to go there, it actually ended up costing less than the state school. Yeah, that's uh, that's quite common. When we... Um, Look at uh, what we're teaching, why we're teaching. One of the things that you discuss in the book, and again, we're talking about um, your book, The Case Against Education, is is vocational education, vocational training, mm-hmm. something that we may or may not have uh, turned our back on a little bit. What's happening with vocational education? Yeah, so vocational education uh, you know, is uh, has been on the decline for quite some time. One of the main kinds of emails I got from teachers for my book was people say, I, you know, I, I really like what you said about vocational education. I'm the last person at the school that does it. When I retire, they're killing the program. Uh, so there is this idea that a lot of Americans have that there's something bad about vocational education because you're stunting people's job opportunities or you're stunting their aspirations by saying, hey, why don't you go and try learn how to go and repair cars? Uh, again, like you know, the actual research on it says that vocational education seems to be a very good way of helping students to do better in life, uh, you know, to reduce unemployment rates, to um, you know, to make more money. Um, you know, there's even research saying that vocational education helps keep kids in school because a lot of kids hate academics with a uh, with a passion, and having even one class where they work with their hands and do something that they don't mind doing is helpful for keeping them in. Uh, but anyway, uh, there is there is this uh, great distaste that a lot of people have for vocational education. But again, it's a you know, not only is it you know, a very reasonable path for a lot of people, right? But it's all—it's also one where, and if you really just think about what you know, what is useful for society, yeah. then you know, you know what is better to go and teach someone to do a practical skill or, or that that actually appeals to them that they might do something with, or to go and make them do another poetry class. And you know, so, it, it, I mean, yeah, yes. I was just going to say, and probably in your analysis, you've you've looked at you know the outcomes of some of these trainings. Mm-hmm. You know, being a plumber, you can make a darn good living. Being a welder, oh, yeah. you can make a terrific living. I mean, these are skills uh, that can lead to a very, very uh, prosperous life. 
Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, there's also a big middle-class prejudice against training kids for jobs like that because, you know, that's not the kind of thing that's appropriate for people of our social class. Uh, but again, if you think about you know, a useful function of school would just be exposing people to possibilities that might work for them, then, yeah, you know, vocational education is really underrated. So you know, out of all the curriculum changes that people talked about, I do think it's one of the most underrated. Yeah. We're talking tonight with Brian Kaplan. He's a professor. He's got a book out that's called The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time Time and Money. He's got other books as well. More information about Brian at his website, B. Kaplan. Kaplan is spelled with a C, bkaplan.com. Brian, Brian, how long has The Case Against Education been available, the book? Uh, just about two years now. As When you released it, did you get any heat for it? Uh, only a little bit. Uh, so there were a couple of people in my university that wanted to talk about it, and I'm wondering, huh, is this going to be, where they come and say, how could you write this book? But actually, they were curious. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think, nothing nothing much came out of it. Uh, so I guess the, the people that seemed to be most upset about the book were humanities professors, <laughs> right? And and especially there was a uh, a, a very uh, a repeated cry that I was sort of a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal economist who just didn't appreciate the finer things in life and mm-hmm. didn't like poetry or music or art. And, you know, and, and here's the thing, I have a whole chapter on that. So, I mean, there, I, I, I had so many people say, you know, Kaplan never talks about this. And I said, look, I can understand criticizing my book without reading it. Everybody does that. Right. But to criticize the book without reading the table of contents seems a little lazy. <laughs> I, guess, you know, I just look, look, it's right there. So I don't know why you why you say this. Well, I love. I mean, it was just easy for them to caricature it. Yeah. Again, what I said there is, you know, all of these efforts to go and elevate the human soul and so on. You know, this is all great if it works. But just because schools say they're trying to instill love of poetry doesn't mean that they succeed. So school says, well, it's not about the money. It's about making kids love poetry. All right, fine. Show me the kids that you've made love poetry. Yeah. Right? And, and, and again, of course, that is a very painful question because almost anyone who teaches poetry knows that hardly any kids are persuaded to like it. That's right. Which is you know, not so surprising. You go and you take a bunch of conscripts and say, you know, this thing is great. You have to love it. And you know, people will just do the bare minimum and try to get through it. So, um, you know, what, what I say is that if, you know, people really want to broaden their horizons, enlighten themselves, we now have the Internet. You really can do it on your own. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like whatever excuse we had for dragooning people and making them go and learn stuff they're not curious about, it really is, is almost totally gone in the modern world. Um, and again, really what we see is that we've made culture extremely accessible at basically zero cost. And while there are some people going and watching operas on YouTube, it's a very tiny share of the hits. Most people just aren't interested, and it's not because they can't afford it. It's because it's boring to them. I mean, when I remember when I was a kid, I mean, I like I love all this high culture stuff, but I would just couldn't believe that like my dad, who really likes just restoring antique cars, wouldn't like it. I said, Dad, you have to understand this is this is German composer, Richard yeah. there, it's so great. Yeah. And he's just like if I could just tell you say the the magic words, you would you would agree with me. And I had to get older before I realized, no, there are no magic words. There's nothing on earth that would change my dad's mind about this. It's just boring to him at the very core of his being. And that's how most people are for Shakespeare and classical music and most of the other things the schools are pushing. 
I mean, I wish it weren't so, but uh, it's just the way it is. You know, I love the titles of your books because they're so. The titles themselves are so bold. The case against education: why the education system is a waste of time and money. The myth of the rational voter: why democracies choose bad policies. Policies: selfish reasons to have more kids. Why being a great parent is less work and more fun than you would think. Are 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 you intentionally trying to you know uh, offer a slight slap across the face to wake people up with these? titles? Well, yeah, I mean, I do want to get people's attention, but I'm not exaggerating. I don't pick titles just for shock value. Mm-hmm. You could say, you might say that I pick topics for shock value, but I mean, really, really what I'm doing is if there is a position that a lot of people already hold, then 10 books on it have already been written and you don't need me to write the 11th book on it. Good point. So, you know, like you know, when I shop around for topics to work on, I want to find arguments that I think are meritorious that hardly anyone else wants to defend. You know, I think about finding orphan topics, you know, topics where nobody loves them, nobody cares about them. And I say, you know, you're really a great topic, and I don't care if other people don't love you. I love you, and I'm going to raise you, and I'm going to make you strong, and I'm going to send you out into the world standing tall. And that's what I try to do with all these books is to find ideas that I think are really undervalued, you know, especially often they're ideas where they don't sound good on the surface, and so people shy away from them. But I say, you know, really just because... First impressions say this is a weird idea. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. And I've thought about it a lot, and I think it really does make sense, even if it doesn't really sound, it doesn't really tell people what they want to hear. You mentioned uh, the Internet a moment ago. It was kind of the first uh, time you've used the word in our discussion tonight. But obviously, the Internet, and I, I want to stay pre-COVID in our discussion right now, because we'll talk about COVID in a few <laughs> yeah, minutes. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, how has technology changed, particularly secondary education in the, in the United States? Hmm. I mean, the easiest answer is to say that now a great many schools just have a totally distracted student population playing with their phones. Right. Uh, right. I mean, I like I have been shocked by the extent to which high schools just let kids use their phones in class and just ignore the, ignore ignore what's going on, and as long as it keeps them sedated. So that's probably actually the biggest effect is that. In schools where they let kids use their phones, then kids are barely paying any attention to what's going on in an actual class. In terms of the rest, uh, you know, I'd say it's very superficial. So it used to be that you'd roll out the TV with a VCR and show them a movie that way. And now you go and show them some YouTube videos. So there's that. I mean, obviously, there's, you know, like there's the areas where they're really actually getting value, like when you teach computer programming to kids, which prepares them for a wide range of great careers. But, I mean, that's a pretty small share of students, again, that are actually learning serious programming in school. Uh, but there are plenty that are watching YouTube videos. The uh, you know One of the things that I hear from not so much my kids, but I hear it from other kids, uh, why do I need to learn this? All I have to do is type it into my phone or my computer or whatever it happens to be, mostly mm-hmm. phone, and I can get any answer I need. Uh, yeah, so... I mean, for purely factual questions, then it's very reasonable. Um, you know, like if you, if I were actually to go and try to explain to a kid, well, what's the point of study, uh, studying these subjects? I mean, I start with, well, like if you don't know how, you know, don't know reading, writing, and math, then you really won't have any way of even understanding what to put into the phone. So I think there's that's part of the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, like, like for uh, for other subjects, I would also say, well, look, if you don't have a reasonable body of knowledge in your head. Again, you just don't understand enough about the topic just to fill in the gaps. 
So I mean, searching on your phone is a great way to say, oh, I've forgotten a date or something like that. But again, if you don't have any idea what the Soviet Union was, it's very hard for someone just to use their phone to understand what was going on in the Cuban Missile Crisis or something like that. Again, of course, for a lot of these subjects, they'll never come up in real life anyway, unless you're a history professor or something like that. Well, I think, um, you know, we've all heard the adage, if uh, you don't learn from the past, you're doomed to repeat it or however it goes. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think we're seeing a lot of that at play now. Um, I can't put my finger on any specific examples, but I just get a sense that people don't really understand uh, even recent history in some cases. Yeah, of course. Uh, so, you know, you know that, that the, the adage is true, although the implication is, yeah, well, we're just doomed to repeat a lot of stuff because... That you know, people have never been have never paid much attention to history. Yeah. They're not very not very good at analyzing it. The only source of hope, if you want to call it a source of hope, is to say, well, let's go and talk to the typical history professor, history teacher, and see if we think that their views on current events are especially insightful. And I got to say, they don't seem very insightful to me. Uh, so, you know, well, you know, normally when I talk to his professors about the areas they specialize, then they seem great. But when I ask them, what do you think about what's going on now? I either get, uh, well, I do 16th century France. I'm not really qualified <laughs> to comment on anything now. Right? Or I just get them repeating the last thing they heard on the news like almost anybody else. Right. So uh, you know, like one of the things that I talk about in the case against education is that people have long hoped that people would learn something in one area and then transfer that knowledge into another area. And yet the actual evidence that people do this is very thin. I mean, most people, at best, seem to learn the exact material they're taught. The idea that people are going to go and cleverly apply what they learn in history to daily life, it's just like it could be done, but it's mostly wishful thinking. Right? I mean, especially if you just think about what, you know, what would an historically informed person do when approaching current events. Uh, at least the way, the, way, the way that I see it is that usually people that know a lot just search through their mental database of examples until they find one that gives the answer that they want. And then they say, well, it's just like World War I, right? Yeah. Or it's just like World War II, right? And really, like, if you want to say war's a bad idea, you say, oh, this is just like it was in World War I. If you want to say war's a good idea, you say, eh, it's just like it was in World War II. It's like, <laughs> hmm, it just seems like you could, you know enough examples to find one that says what you wanted to say anyway. So, again, this doesn't mean that you couldn't actually use history in a good way, but... I mean, honestly, when people say, well, what are we going to do? You know, what would happen if people didn't, know, didn't understand history well? I'll say, yeah, you know what, you know what would happen if people didn't understand history well? What does happen? Because that's yeah. the world we're in. Yeah, great point. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking with Brian Kaplan tonight, and we're talking about his book, The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. Again, you can get more information about all of, all of his work at B. Kaplan. Kaplan is with a C, bkaplan.com. When we come back, we're going to talk about COVID and how that has affected education. And we all know it has significantly. It's beyond reality. Don't go away. We've got a lot more ahead tonight. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. Tonight we're talking with Brian Kaplan. Um, Brian is a professor at George Mason University. We're talking about his book, Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. And Brian, I've got to assume, now again, I don't have kids in school. But I've got to assume now that uh, kids in many places are being forced to stay home and um, 
basically take their classes on Zoom or other some other type of computer program, and parents are forced to monitor and help and do a lot of the work that would normally be, have been done in school, that our property school taxes are going to drop significantly. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, dream on. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. What is happening in education right now? Is this a good thing? Are we learning some things about the education system that COVID is actually forcing us to learn? Well, I mean, we should learn some things. Like the main thing is that most of the value of K-12 is daycare. But I don't see that people really are learning it. Mostly looks to me like a lot of Stockholm Syndrome of people desperately saying, oh, it's working out really great. Yeah, mm-hmm. everything is just fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you know, to me, this is really at the crazy point. You know, like, I mean, I just talked to so many parents where the amount of work they're doing uh, in order just to monitor their kids and upload their work and everything else is more than if they would just homeschool their kids, uh, which is what I've been doing with all of my kids uh, you know, for, for, for COVID. And, you know, I am just sort of puzzled, like, well, what exactly is it that you think the teacher knows that you don't know that makes you want to be part of the system when you are all, well, you're not saving any time anymore? So like, why is it that you don't just do it yourself at this point? Talk a little bit about homeschooling. Um, you know, it's something that uh, most people just kind of hear on the fringes. You hear, oh, yeah, that, that, mm-hmm. that child on your, on your son's Little League team, he's his homeschooler or whatever. You know, but a lot of people don't really understand it other than you're not sending your kids to school. Tell us a little bit about the actual practice of homeschooling. Yeah. So I guess the main thing about homeschooling is that it leaves the parents generally very free to give their kid whatever education they think would be a good one for their kids. There are some states where they breathe down your neck a bit and try to make you teach the standard curriculum, but usually they don't. So in my home state of Virginia, uh, really the parent is quite free to do almost anything they want. And, you know, of course, most many, many people said, oh, my God, well, what if the parent does a bad job? What if the public schools do a bad job? That's hardly a fanciful story. Um, you know, so what I have done with my kids is, you know, so my older two, I've homeschooled them for six years now. So I started with them once they were in middle school. And for them, it mostly was just about they were very unhappy in regular school, and they just felt infantilized by it, and they really just wanted to go at a much faster pace and do a, a much more traditional academic curriculum. And uh, I was on board with that, so it was very and very easy for me as a professor just to take them to the office and give them the education that they want. Uh, so you know that's worked out very well for us. Uh, for my younger kids, they they still seem pretty happy in regular school, and since they were younger, they were not so well behaved, and <laughs> therefore I was just letting them stay where they were and saying, well, maybe when you get older. But once COVID hit. Then I said, "Well, this is ridiculous. There's no reason for me to go and breathe, breathe over their breathe over their shoulders while they get orders from somebody else who's doing a job that I think is a lot worse than what I would do." So, you know, you know once so then I just took over my younger kids' education too, and that's when I got a good idea about what was going on in their classes already. You know, like one of the main things I just found out is, well, they're really behind in math compared to where I think they should be. And so, like in my home school, we just do a lot more math than you would do in a regular school, and you know, and and especially just with an eye towards progress and then when you know mastering material and then moving on to the next thing and just doing that continuously. Uh, so that's you know one of the main differences between what I do and what I saw going on in regular school, where you know they just put a lot less time into math and then on top of it, just seem to have a lot of repetition rather than trying to move ahead. 
Uh, but again, I mean, the main thing that I would tell parents about homeschooling is just this: you know, like, well, what do you th- what would you think would be most beneficial for your kid? Right. So, you know, like, just for like, maybe, maybe if you think that the existing system is is fantastic, then stick with it. But if you look at what they're doing and say that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, there's probably a lot to your doubts, and you can just cut out the parts of the curriculum that don't make much sense to you, and focus on the parts that you think are worthwhile. Uh, I've got to ask this, and and I'm going to use a really bad pun here. I don't want you to talk out of school, but um, when you you look at the amount of time you have to spend homeschooling versus a, a regular school day, my impression of a regular school day, again, going back to when my kids were there, was there was a lot of wasted time. Oh, yeah. Is that true? <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, like, the most obviously is just the waste of time for discipline. And just to get people to be quiet, to quiet down and do their stuff. But then, you know, like, there's also just an enormous amount of wasted time in the curriculum. So if your kid hates art, and they still make him do art. Your kid doesn't want to do music. They still make him do music. And you can say, well, those are important. Like, well, they're important for some people. They're not important for people that aren't interested in art and music. And we have a pretty good idea, idea about who those people are. So, you know, I, I tell my kids uh, right now, look, there's some stuff you don't like where it's still going to be really useful for you as an adult. And that's math, primarily. And so, yeah, even if you don't like it, you still have to do it. Uh, but then I say, you know, but I'm, and if there's anything that you really don't want to do that you'll never need to know, I won't make you do that. So I do tell my kids, look, I promise I'm not going to waste your time. If you're suffering, you're suffering for a good reason, right? And that, you know, so with math, we just suffer through it. If you don't like it, that's too bad. But on the other hand, if a kid doesn't feel like dancing, like I'm not going to say, sorry, you have to dance for an hour every week. The <laughs> curriculum says we have to. I mean, just the attitude of school officials whenever I would call up and say, look, is there some way my kids could just go to the library during dance time because he really doesn't like dance? And just say, no, 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 our regulations require that all yeah. students dance. Yeah. It's like, oh, like, oh, well, what a stupid regulation. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, some people who uh, look at homeschooling from the outside in are often quick to say, but the kids lose, lose a major social uh, benefit. What do, what do you say to that? Well, I say it's possible, but it's not not normally the case. So I mean, most homeschool kids still do lots of activities with other kids, and they have a lot of interaction with other kids. Um, of course, if, you know, like, if the parents well, you know, like, didn't make much effort to make that happen and the kid was shy, then maybe it wouldn't. But on the other hand, you also have to remember the horrible social experiences so many kids have in regular school, just like the number of kids that are bullied and right. that, are, right. that are crying at the very thought of going to school. And again, usually what happens is that people want to compare some idealized version of public education to really like the worst case scenario for homeschooling. And this is not a fair comparison. You've got to go and compare, well, like, what is it actually generally like for kids in school or in, what, what, or in regular school? What is it actually like for kids in homeschool? Uh, my, my two older sons really have been much more oriented towards adult society from a young age. and They really just want to hang out with adults. And... Uh, so, you know, you might look at them and say, ah, this is your know, typical product of homeschooling. They don't want to hang out with other teenagers. And I say, you know, if they were in regular school, they wouldn't be hanging out with other teenagers either. They're just stubborn that way. But uh, still, like in terms of the social skills to navigate the adult world, I will say that my kids are doing great and they have no problem at all. And also, like adult society is really the important society, actually. You're not going to spend the rest of your life dealing with teenagers. You're going to spend the rest of your life dealing with adults. So I'd say that's the kind of social socialization that you really need to do well in life. And what happens when you get into some more advanced topics? Like, you know, I took calculus 
in, mm-hmm. in, in high school and college. Uh, I, I couldn't teach calculus right now. I, I, you know, have no concept of how I'd even begin. Uh, how do you handle something like that? Yeah, so for me, there was foreign language where I got a typical crummy foreign language education in high school. So I wasn't competent to teach foreign language to my kids. Um, now, that was one where, of course, the temptation is to say, well, why don't we just skip it? And I was, eh, like almost every college requires foreign language. We can't skip this. Sorry. Uh, so for that, I cobbled together a few different things. So first of all, I was able to, you know, they were, my kids were able to take classes at my university. Uh, so they had a program where high school kids could take college, could take a college class. So we did that. I got a tutor for them. Um, so, again, of course, this is not really relevant for most people until their kids are in high school or maybe maybe middle school. Um, so, I mean, you know, for, for me, for most subjects, wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't a problem. I mean, normally the way that I would uh, talk about that I teach my kids for homeschooling is say, all right, so if you don't understand something, first talk to each other, and then second, Google it, and then third, come over to me. Right now, you know, again, since I do have a pretty good background in most subjects, there's not too much that, I, that is hard for me. I guess when my sons were doing uh, physics, what they were doing was more advanced than anything I did. And mm-hmm. then at that point, they were ready to teach themselves, although that's because they had a very good background in math, which I was able to do for them. Uh, again, you know, for parents who just feel out of their depths, then again, you know, of course, I understand why you might say, let's just go and do this in regular school. Although, you know, don't be so quick to assume that you couldn't just go and get a tutor to go and help, and, uh, help you out on a subject or two where you don't feel where you feel out of your depth or don't feel ready to do it. And again, in terms of just the disruption to your life, um, and I think the tutor is probably going to be a lot better for you than uh, having to actually subject your kids to the whole system, and again, especially now. Now, you know, one thing I've always said about homeschool is that I don't recommend it for everybody, although during COVID, I kind of do. Right. Yeah. So during you know, during COVID, when I see a parent that is uh, that is bossing their kid around and and uh, and being the enforcer for Zoom school, that is where I say like what you're doing just seems crazy to me. It would be it would take less less of your time, less frustration, and more learning if you just checked your kid out of the system and homeschooled them for the duration of the crisis. And if you say that you don't feel ready to do that, well, you're ready enough, right? And like like just look at what a disaster the current system is. It's just I mean, it just seems. Uh, I mean, this is well, this is where I just uh, uh, it's almost unfathomable to me that someone would spend several hours a day watching over their kid to make sure that they do what the teacher on the other side of the screen says. It's like, well, can't you do this yourself? And half the time, right? Um, so, and again, like when I ask parents about this, uh, you know, because I know a lot of parents that are doing you know doing Zoom school. You know, they just have this look of desperation in their eyes, like, well, what am I going to do? Just do it on my own? What's that going to be like? It's like, well, like try it. I don't think it's going to be that hard for you. I mean, I think you know, like all this material your kids are doing, you understand fractions, right? All right. Well, then you could probably teach your kid fractions, and you know, in less time than it takes to watch or to make sure your kid is doing his work, and then help him with his homework, and then help him upload it, and all the other issues. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, like during normal time, I understand that a lot of parents feel like they don't have the time, but right now, I think homeschooling takes less time than. Watching over your kid. Yeah. Um, every, every once in a while, I have an epiphany. And rather recently, I would say within the last couple of years, I had an epiphany that anything I wanted to learn to do or get more information on was on YouTube. There's a lesson mm-hmm. for everything. Um, is that the future of education? And is the system 
denying and or ignoring that as a as a possible future for education. Right. I guess the main issue there is that that's a great system for anyone motivated. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and then for the other 99% of humanity, it's not <laughs> such a great system, unfortunately. Uh, so, you know, I, sl- I slightly exaggerate there, but... I do remember, actually, back when I was an undergraduate at UC Berkeley, there was a whole set of, of self-paced math classes where instead of going to a regular calculus class, for example, you just have a textbook, and there's a testing center, and there's some tutors, and they say, all right, just learn the material, and when you're ready to take a test, come take a test. And even though Berkeley was the flagship public university in California, I think still about half the kids who took that class failed it because they just procrastinated and lacked initiative, and they just screwed it up. So I think that is a general problem with human nature that makes it hard for just purely self-motivated learning to be standard. Again, of course, if it's a subject where you're only doing it for the joy of doing it, then I'd say, that's fine. Let the people that want to do it, do it, and the people that don't, don't. Uh, If it's something like math where a lot of, most people don't like it, but it's still very useful, that's where I would say there is a problem. Right and and really, you know, what I mean, like one of my main advice, a piece of advice for homeschoolers is, you know, like if your kid if your kid likes math, then really you barely need to monitor the kid at all. Right? <laughs> so math is the main thing that you have to crack the whip to get kids to do. Uh, but you know, like if your kid doesn't like math, which is the way most most kids are, and I say, all right, for that one thing, that's where you put all of your energy, and you say, sorry, you may not like this, but you have to do it. And then again, then just be relaxed on the other stuff because. Most of the other stuff, people really will get it on their own. I have met a lot of uh, adults that were homeschooled, and I would say that you know they generally are much more knowledgeable than most people give them credit for. There's you know, stereotypes about ignorant homeschoolers just are untrue. But the one negative that I've seen is there are a lot of homeschoolers who are very smart but just don't know much math, mm-hmm. and it is because their parents just say, well, it's up to you, and they then got to the situation where they are adults, but they don't know much math and are never going to because you know, math is so uh, is, is, is so sequential. Right? There's so much in math where if you didn't learn the earlier parts, you can't you just can't continue. Right. So you know, like my main advice for homeschoolers is just put some pressure on your kids on the math and the rest. You can be almost as relaxed as you want. They'll probably do fine. But what about going back to this YouTube question that I posed? Mm-hmm. I was. Uh, uh, what about more of, a, of a, an example of a delivery system versus relying on people mm-hmm. to motivate themselves to go to YouTube to learn about something? But but as a system to, to deliver a lesson, um, you know, instead mm-hmm. of sending kids to a school somewhere where there's 30 kids in a room and one teacher, why can't that one teacher through a, whether it's YouTube or some other platform, deliver uh, a lecture about something to thousands of kids? Yeah, and of course, the idea is you get the best lecturer to do it. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, you know, that's, that's very reasonable. You know, like, you know, like the, the main issue is that for most people, listening gives the illusion of understanding, but really you've got to do it in order to learn it. So I mean, it's thing, like, like for a lot of topics, you know, like professors like giving lectures, but lectures are not really a great method for teaching. Uh, again, especially if people aren't that motivated, there's much more important is to get them in front of a desk and actually do some problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in, term, in terms of just the pure quality of the lecture, then I agree with you. I agree with you completely. Let's talk more about COVID. Um, you know, it's changing. It's changing a, a lot of things. I don't know how long we're going to be uh, in this 
environment. Uh, I don't, and I know it's not everywhere, but I'm in New York State. New York State is still has some optional in-person learning, but most kids are choosing to do the home Zoom stuff. Um, mm-hmm. What is this doing to both the system and to the kids? Do we have any sense? Well, as you were suggesting at the beginning, the, what it's doing to the system is it's showing them that they can get all the money they're used to getting while doing delivering very little of the value that they used to deliver. So again, like what it seems like what parents really were getting out of it uh, unambiguously was the daycare. Yeah. And now they don't get that, and yet there's very little public pressure to reopen public schools. Uh, I mean, I know that there are many people who said, well, it's just this, the schools are just doing what people want. I say, no, that's not true. If you look at private schools, private schools are very aggressively trying to figure out ways to reopen in person so they can deliver that daycare and make parents happy. Right? So even though as voters, people may be very willing to take a lot of excuses about why schools can't be reopened, when they're paying their own money for, uh, for the service, uh, parents definitely want that service delivered to them. So that's you know, one thing that's going on. Uh, you know, like you know, like optimistic, you say, well, we're learning that there's other ways that we can go and teach kids and so on. But I don't think we're learning anything that people want to stick with once we're back, once COVID is uh, back under control, back under control. So, you know, I think people will be sending their kids back to physical schools to get that daycare again uh, very quickly. I um, mean, in terms of other effects, you know, like one of the main ones I see is just the extreme isolation and social anxiety that so many people have now. Right, which I think is uh, you know giving people quite miserable lives. I mean, it's striking to me how many people were really were criticizing homeschooling for failing to socialize kids, and now I know plenty of kids that for eight months have barely seen another child. Right. So it <laughs> seems a bit odd to me to be saying, "Oh, socialization is so important," and also we're not going to give these the kids don't need any of it for eight months because of really for kids a very small risk to their health. Um, so so again, it seems like a very a strange attitude and in just a you know a quick amne- a sudden am- a stroke of amnesia where people who previously were saying that socialization is very mm-hmm. important for kids suddenly thinking that the most important thing is purely to re- prevent very small risks very recently um we we had a situation and I think it was the Los Angeles um county school district whatever it was teachers were talking about uh, not returning to the classroom after being uh, forced out of the classroom because of COVID. Uh, but they had all these other conditions they put into their list of demands, <laughs> including things like defunding the police and some very bizarre non-education-related <laughs> items. What the heck is going on with things like that? Yeah, so probably that's teachers' unions, which, uh, as you would guess, are you know, very dominated by very left-wing leaders who... You know, speak claim to speak for all teachers, and who would then in turn claim to speak for the entire population. Um, you know, so you know, like partly, I, it's just a way of saying, yeah, we really don't want to, we really never want the schools to reopen again, at least, at least not for the foreseeable future. So if we make enough unreasonable demands, we don't have to worry about it. Um, but yeah, but you know, but, you know a, a lot, a lot of it is again that you know, there, there's you know, this very extreme risk aversion. Which again, like you know, it's not as crazy for adults as it is for kids. Although still, for healthy adults uh, who are not who are you know like like less than fifty, then again, the risk is actually very slight. Yeah, yeah. Um, when we start looking under the hood of the public education system, and again, going back to the, what it costs us, and the fact that in many places, and I know in New York State this to be true, the burden is placed on property owners, homeowners, and. You know, those numbers dwarf mortgages in many cases. 
And it's mm-hmm. starting to create a problem where especially seniors can't afford to stay in their homes. Is there any fix to this? Do you see any way we can still deliver or maybe improve the product, improve the, the education product, but do it at a more reasonable cost? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, here, here's the thing. If you really went to a public school during normal times with an eye to saving money without reducing performance on key skills, it would be easy. Right? I mean, you just start with, wait, why do you need a college degree to teach kindergarten? Yeah. Like, what is it? You know, so, and again, like, questions like this are totally reasonable. Or, or how about, like, why do you need a college degree to be a gym teacher? I mean, just in, you know, just starting with, can we figure out ways to go and hire people that are able to do the job as well or almost as well who cost a lot less money because they don't have the same credentials? So, and again, of course, labor costs for education are going to be the main cost. And again, then there's, of course, a lot of requirements where you may say, well, well who says the requirements? And it's, it's the system says the requirements. Well, if we change the rule, then, we, then it's no longer required, and then we don't have to spend the money on this. So, again, with the numerous required classes in art and music and so on that schools have, and then say, well, how are we to afford this stuff? And like, well, a lot of kids don't like it anyway. So, you know, like you could just say, look, it's an elective. If kids happen to like it, then they can do a class in it. Otherwise, they could go and do something else. Um, so, and then just in terms of the pure daycare function, one thing that I've been a big fan of is how about we reduce the number of hours that people are studying to time that they are learning subjects they actually really need, and then give them a lot more time to play in the playground. And again, you don't need to have someone with a bachelor's degree going and blowing a whistle at the playground. You can have people who are uh, much, you know, much less credentialed, much lower skilled, and still they can perfectly well do that job. Uh, so, you know, again, since the daycare is so much of, what, of the useful thing that school does, just saying, all right, well, it's going to last a long time, but we do like four hours of actual academics where we're really learning math and reading and writing. And then the rest of the day, you can go in the playgrounds, uh, you can go to the library and read books, uh, you can hang out with your friends, and then you know, we add four, we kill four more hours that way. I mean, in a way, one of the, like, the shames of, of, uh, reg- of school during normal times is that you bring all these kids together. It's a great opportunity for them to have fun together, and then you go and bully them all day, making them do <laughs> stupid stuff, instead of just saying, hey, you know, like, here's, a, here's a couple hours, go play with your friends, have fun. Uh, so <laughs> instead, say, all right, now everyone has to stand here and learn to dance. Right. Uh, so like, well, like, why? Like, all right, if you like dancing, great. Most people don't like dancing, especially, you know, most boys right. don't, don't like dancing. And they say, oh, they'll like it if they just try it. Yeah, no. They won't. No, they won't. Uh, what about in the, the cost of administration? seems to me that many districts mm-hmm. are becoming very administration top-heavy. Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, you can look at Catholic schools, which have far less administration, and say, like, what exactly is the harm? What have we lost? I mean, it was administration, you know, the, the classic story that you have administrators are creating more, um, or hiring more administrators to go and uh, handle the work that they themselves have created. There's so much to that. So... You know, like, you know, it is a case of like idle hands the devil's playground, and you have an administrator. He's well, I've got to do something, so let's go and create a commission on this and act like it's a big deal, and then hire more people to go and deal with this problem that I've mostly imagined in my head. And then they can get those people I hire can find more witch hunts to go and work on. So yeah, you know, like there's just so much of this stuff could just be eliminated. With and in terms of what the effect would be on actual student learning or anything else. Uh, Probably, you know, not, no effect at all. 
so yeah, I mean, there's there's there are there are so many ways of doing it. But before you can really save money, you just need to get a different attitude. You need to stop looking at schools like they're full of saints yeah. and that they are superior people that just would have to be obeyed, and instead realize, look, there's some very nice people working in school, and then there's also just a lot of very unreasonable, dogmatic people right, who are wasting taxpayer money. And the fact that you call yourself an, uh, an educator who's trying to help children doesn't mean that you're actually helping children or educating them. So but again, this is something that I deal with whenever I talk to parents. I mean, even now, during COVID, when people are getting so little value out of the schools, and yet when I say, yeah, why don't you just homeschool? And then it's like, well, what would I teach? Yeah. It's like, look, like you went through the system, you know, like, like if you don't know what to teach, what does that say about the education that you got? You know, I think you know enough math and reading and writing to teach your own kid. And you could say during normal times you don't have the time to do it, but now you'll save time if you just cut the cord of the system and do it yourself. So why not just do it? it to wrap that uh, that idea up a little bit more neatly, if someone was interested, Brian, in, in pursuing this and actually saying, okay, you know what, I am going to try homeschooling my children, uh, what is the, there, is there a place they can go online somewhere else where they can gather some resources and maybe get an outline of how they begin the process and you know, give them a little more mm-hmm. confidence? Yeah, so there's the legal side and then there's the educational side. So the legal side is going to be different for every single state. However, uh, thanks to the good efforts of homeschooling activists around the country, the rules are now very lax in almost all states. Right. So like in Virginia, all you have to do is go and send a letter to the state of Virginia to like a certain email address for the state of Virginia saying you're going to homeschool your kid. And then there and then like you can either go and show what your credential is or you can write a statement saying why it is that you think you're qualified to homeschool your kid. It's really just a formality. Uh, so then once you've taken care of the legal side and you can just say, all right, fine, my, like, I, I'm not going to have my kid taken away by child services or anything else, which is pretty unrealistic in any case. But once you feel comfortable with the legal side, which, again, it is not too hard. You don't need a lawyer or anything like that to do it. It's very easy in most places. Then the next thing I would say is, well, what do you think your kid actually needs to know? So, I mean, I, I would start actually just by you know, giving your kids some tests to find out what their kid already does now. You know, even if you're they are your kid, you may actually be surprised to say, all right, so what math do you know right now? Well, you know, like what are you able to read? What are you able? What kind of writing are you able to do? So, you know, once you find out where your kid is, then that gives you an idea of you know, what is it the kid needs to do more of. What are, where 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 are they behind in terms of where they need to be to be independent adult one and independent adults one day, right? And then you know, if there's anything in particular that the kid's really interested in or you think would be valuable. Then you would add that on. Uh, you know, there there are lots of uh, canned homeschooling curricula. So some of them free, some of them you can pay very moderate amounts of money to get. So it doesn't take very much in the way of money overall, right? And uh, then just you know, you know, proceed from there. We're almost out of time. I noted that uh, your new project it's called Poverty: Who to Blame. How far mm-hmm. along are you with that one? That sounds very interesting too. Let's see. Well, I've got a lot of ideas, and I've written like. Uh, a preface and uh, and, a, and, a, and a first chapter, uh, but yeah, you know, what I want to do in that book is uh, take this old-fashioned, out of favor idea of the deserving versus the undeserving poor, and say actually this this distinction really makes a lot of sense. It's one that we actually use routinely even today without admitting it. Like if you just think about what people consider to be a good way to spend philanthropic dollars, or if you just look at 
even where welfare states usually spend money. Usually there isn't a lot of money for healthy, childless adults, right, even if they are very poor. Right? So, you know, it probably reflects a sense that people like that should be able to take care of themselves, at least you know, during normal times. Right? And then, you know, building off that distinction and thinking about, well, so, you know, how much of poverty actually is due to irresponsible behavior? How much of it is due to people being prevented from actually taking care of themselves? Uh, so, you know, in the, in the book, I'm going to have you know, chapters on in bad government policies, is there are countries where you could really work very hard and get the country so messed up that, you're, that you could still be in great poverty. Um, you know, you talk quite a bit about immigration policy and what, what I think of as the shameful way that governments try to prevent people from just crossing borders to get a better job or just to escape from a crummy government. Yeah, and then, you know, last, I am going to talk about irresponsible behavior. Uh, there's a lot of research on something called the success sequence. And it basically comes down to, at least in countries like the United States, there's some very simple rules you can follow that almost guarantee that you will not be poor. And again, the rules are basically you know, finish high school, work full-time, and mm-hmm. don't have kids until you're married. Right. right. And if you just look at people who follow these very simple rules, this is not rocket science, then very few people who follow these rules are poor. Right. So, you know, minimum, it's just a useful thing to tell people. Like, don't tell people it's hopeless and you'll never work your way out of poverty. Tell people, look, actually, it's pretty simple to avoid poverty in this country. You just need to go and follow this advice that, of course, almost every parent and teacher has been giving you for your entire life. Right. But it's, you know, in this case, it's not just idle propaganda. It actually does work. Right. And then, but uh, then also realizing, well, you know, like, you know, Probably will, like when we are thinking about ways of helping people, we should prioritize people that are suffering despite doing everything right, and just you know do triage and say you know like there's lower priority for people that have messed up their own lives rather than people whose lives were messed up by outside forces. It's just so reassuring to hear you say much of what you said, not just in talking about your new project, but in everything we've talked about tonight, because a lot of it comes down to if you just use a little bit of common sense and apply those principles mm-hmm. to much of this, the outcomes would be far better. Yeah, you know, that's, that's a, you know, one of the main themes of my work is that you know, common sense is not so common. And again, especially <laughs> there are a lot of important topics where there's what you're supposed to say and then there was, there's what's really true. Uh, so psychologists talk about something called social desirability bias, where when the truth sounds bad, people lie. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the lies become so all-encompassing that they just totally lose touch with the truth. You know, things as simple as, am I fat? There's only one nice answer to that question. It's <laughs> always no. But it doesn't mean that everyone is, uh, has a healthy body weight. Right. Right. And, and just to realize that, you know, like in society, there is pressure on people to go and, and lie because the truth sounds bad. And then, again, eventually, if you lie too much, then it does just become hard even to appreciate what's really going on. There are things like, uh, you know, psychologists you know, psychologist have shown that people exaggerate how much they go to church or how much they vote. Or, you know, like any time that the truth sounds bad, there is, there is this lying and deception and self-deception going on. And, you know, a lot of what I try to do in my work is to focus on topics where popular thinking is just very poisoned by the need to say things that sound good and to say, look, you know, like, maybe the truth just doesn't sound good and we're just going to say it anyway. And sure, it'd be nice to figure out a way to make the truth sound good when it doesn't seem like you can. But if you can't, but, you know, step one is just to get your facts straight. 
I'm going to ask a question uh, for fear, and we're, we're in a little bit of overtime here, but that's okay. I'm going to ask a question for fear of opening a can of worms about what you just said. <laughs> it seems as though now more than ever what you've just said is true in that if you, for some people anyway, if you say what you truly believe or what you truly think, you not only uh, run the risk of being um, bullied and attacked and whatever, um, but you also run the risk of being censored. And, uh, you know, things are changing rapidly in that front, and I think that's very dangerous. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so, you know, I'm a university professor, so we, I would say we are at the very heart of this movement to silence you know, just uncomfortable questions and uncomfortable answers. Uh, you know, so, you know, I have tenure, so legally I, it's almost impossible to fire me, so I'm in a pretty good spot. Yeah, but I do worry about, well, what about people that aren't tenured and that would like to go and do research on sensitive topics, and yet they don't feel like they can do it because people are staring them or giving them a stink eye anytime they start to approach something reasonable to say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of you know, what can be done about this, um, you know, I to say, you know, like, you know, just the first thing is to, you know, to be the change you want to see in the world, to not get upset, try to stay calm. Talk to people in a reasonable way. I mean, I, you know, so I've had friends who have been very badly treated, but I will say I don't feel like I've ever been really badly treated by the internet or by colleagues or anyone else. Uh, so maybe I've just gotten lucky. In fact, I'm pretty sure I have gotten lucky. But you know, also it's it's like you know, just very important to return calmness for anger. And when someone's upset, don't escalate. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Dale Carnegie classic book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Right, and and not because I think I'm great at it, but because I'm not. Right? <laughs> I'm a fan of the book because I know I have so much to learn, and just to read the master and say, "Oh yes, that's what Dale would say." Of course, that's how he would explain it, and that's why people like Dale, and that's why Dale was persuasive because he got people on his side. So that's there. I mean, in terms of you know, what what else you can actually do, uh, so. I mean, legally, of course, there still is the First Amendment, and it's for public universities that does apply to speech at public universities. So at least my school at least has a website where you can go and formally complain if you're, you think your First Amendment rights are being violated. So that's something to think about. Uh, but, you know, just something, something else is just to stand up for other people, especially, you know, like, like I would say you know, for someone like me, given that I have tenure, they like you know my responsibility to stand up for other people that are being silenced or censored is especially high because I'm so safe. Um, you know, I, you know, so so look, you know, if if there's any merit to tenure, it is so that well, there can be at least a few people who aren't afraid of right. getting bullied. Right. So that's that's something that I some, some small thing that I try to do, and I try to encourage other people with tenure to not cower with fear that someone's going to get angry about them for what they say. And I say, look, you know. Of course, try to say it in a diplomatic way, but just you know, like if, if but if uh, then you say it in the nicest possible way, and people still want to bite your head off, that is the time to stand your ground and say, well, "Look, I've got tenure, so uh, you know, if anyone ought to stand up for saying things that are true, even if they're not popular, it's got to be me." The book is called The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. Brian has several other books as well, also touching on some very interesting topics. Brian, where can people find your books? Uh, So Amazon is by far the easiest place to get them, and all of them are pretty cheap, actually. So 
Uh, and again, I, I mentioned that you know, so my most recent book, Open Borders, is the one that I'm happiest about because it's uh, my only book that a lot of kids like too. So I mean, I wrote it for adults, but it is a uh, graphic novel. Where, you know, it's an educational graphic novel. And so you know, a lot of people bought it and their kids are taking it from them. So if you're looking for something to expand your kids' minds during COVID, uh, it's $13.39 on Amazon. So check it out. Let me ask you this before I let you go. Open borders. Um, we are about, with what seems to be an administration change here, about to have what I would think would be a robust debate again about immigration policy. Is your book targeting this discussion or is it something different? Well, I'd say that my, my book is dealing with much bigger questions. Uh, so, I mean, you know, there, there's, you know, despite pro- whatever, whatever you know, propaganda you hear, there's not going to be anything remotely like open borders under Biden. Uh, it'll be more like slightly increasing immigration compared to where it was before Trump. That's, you know, what, what people are discussing. But what I, what I do in the book is just raise the deeper questions like, so why exactly is it? that you want to stop someone from coming to your country to work as a janitor. What exactly is so bad about that? Well, like, why would that not even be something good? Uh, so I put a lot of time just into trying to, to answer the questions of why exactly is the people tend to view an immigrant as a problem unless proven otherwise, right? And what I, really what I say is that you know, the main thing going on with immigration is it's a way for people to move from places where their productivity is low to places where it's high, and when a Haitian shows up on the streets of Miami, he immediately has the ability to earn 20 times as much money as he was doing back at home. And so that's because he is, he is actually contributing so much more to the world when he's in the United States than when he, when he was back in Haiti. You know, like this is really obvious for things like agriculture, where a Mexican farmer in the U.S. can grow so much more food than, than he could have, could have done back at home. Right. Right? So, uh, so anyway, that, that is the perspective that I, that I take in the book. But uh, again, there's, there's a lot more to it than that. But, oh. uh, but, again, but again, it's it's my only book that my five-year-old was reading over my shoulder when I wrote it. So I felt <laughs> like I had something good going there. Well, that's great. Again, uh, fascinating topics, all of them. And I appreciate you coming on and talking about education primarily tonight, Brian. Your work is uh, is excellent, and I, 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 I'm thankful that that there are people like you that are willing to, you know, pull the curtain back a little bit and, and really take a hard, critical look at some of the things that we take for granted. Oh, well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.